You're listening to the Traverse Theatre's Open Submissions Workshop number four. Finding inspiration and rising to the top of the pile with playwright Douglas Maxwell. Escaping the slush pile. Hello everybody. I hope you're all healthy and that your family are healthy and you're happy and you're keeping the heat. And I hope that if you at all get the chance, you're getting to the desk every now and then and trying to write as much as you possibly can. My God, it helps. Just making up something that isn't true or tonic, I recommend it. Um, I've been asked by the Traverse Theatre to make these wee videos to help you, I think, just before you send your scripts in. Um, I don't work for the Traverse, so it doesn't. it's not official. Don't think this is like the rule of thumb for the theatre or anything like that. It's just a personal reflection from me. Um, some of it may be helpful, some of it might not be. Um, it's meant to be about inspiration of all things, which is a really difficult teaching point. I'm not sure you can. I think you might be on your own. That idea of just that fizzy little tickly idea when you think, oh, I could write a play here. This is a show. Um, what I might be able to help with is what you do with it and how you keep that burning and how you keep writing. Um, really, though, if I'm honest, what this is probably all going to be about is the rather horrible business of sending plays in and then waiting on responses and dealing with all that crap, which is where I came from, really. Um, I'm one of the very few playwrights, I think, certainly in Scotland, maybe even in Britain, whose journey to professional playwriting was from the slush pile, right at the bottom of the slush pile. Um, I sent plays away for five, almost six years um, in brown envelopes to literary departments all over the country and had not back after not back after not back until I eventually got a play on. Um, so I can kind of talk about that a little bit. It's difficult because when I first, I think when I was working it out, um, my story when I first had plays on in about the year 2000 was that I'd come through this kind of rejection period and I'd been crying, you know, it was like arsehole gets lucky or whatever the headline was, I don't know. But I think I said I'd written 20 plays. That was the number because it was nice and round. I thought it sounded quite cool. But the truth is, it was way more than that. It was way more than that. And I, I was not just sending the plays off all over the place. I was writing for youth theatres and I wrote for uh, Scottish Enterprise. I wrote for business conferences. There was loads of things I didn't send out. Lots of little one-act play things all over the place. Um, I wanted to keep the number. that I thought that was a low number. Um, but I felt quite insecure about just how much work I'd done before I'd had my first play on because I was largely surrounded by my peers and my friends who were having plays on at that time. It was a first show. For most of them, it was the first or second thing they'd ever written. And then that play went on all around the world. And for me, I felt really insecure about that. I felt really embarrassed that maybe these guys were naturals. You know, they, they just had it in them. Whereas I was a hack that I had to really work at it and graft away and fail, 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 you know. So I, I, I felt really bad about it and I, I slightly lied about it a little bit. Um, that period, though, is really important of the, the maybe where you are, which is writing plays where you're sending them out and trying and trying to find something that's yours. Um, it kind of made me who I am as a writer, really. And I think about it a lot. It's like a book that falls open at the same place. I go back to that time a lot. And particularly I go back to, I was living in um, Mount Florida in Glasgow in a flat with my friend during that period. And I slept in his kitchen. I slept there for like six years or something. And it was your typical flat of that era. You know, there was no central heating. There was no double glazing. There was no shower. There was no oven. Um, all that nonsense. And I was writing the plays. And I remember one point where I was going down to the shops and Cathcart Road and a voice came in my head clearly I remember it it stopped me in my tracks and it said you're not a real playwright you're just pretending and it just feel, felt so true because I wasn't a real playwright right I'm writing things that weren't going on it doesn't make any sense to write a play that doesn't go on 
and no one was reading them, nobody cared. And yet I was signing on and working in these horrible, crappy jobs and right, churning these things out. Why? And it felt true. But now, when I look back at that guy, I think, I don't know if I've ever been more of a real playwright than that time. Because what was keeping me going, man? What, what got me back to that desk to write some godforsaken farce set in the Titanic, whatever the hell I was doing? What, what was keeping me going? It was because I was an artist. I didn't know at the time. It was because I had to, I think. And I don't really understand the drive of it. And much like the inspiration thing, you might be on your own with that too, of finding a way to keep going, but you do need to find a way. Um, and it felt really, that insecurity never quite left. It didn't, I'm not sure it's ever really left. But I'm proud of that time now. And it certainly was my Gladwell's 10,000 hours, you know, of what I've, how I learned to do what I do. And hopefully I'll be able to explain some of it to you. Um, and I've also been on the other side of the fence because I've worked in literary departments. I've, worked, I've taught in universities and I've judged playwriting competitions. So I've read a lot of unsolicited scripts and I've seen it from the other side. Um, and it's hard to, it's, it's hard to give advice on that without it sounding ridiculously general. Um, but what I would say is, overwhelmingly, I don't have the numbers in front of me, I think it's something like 82% of these scripts are trying to be Carol Churchill. Okay? That, I don't know why that's happening, but that's what it is. That Particularly, I think, a lot of writers that come out of the university uh, programmes, which I've taught on a lot, and uh, these are amazing programmes, amazing um, masters and degrees, but somehow you, at the end of that, it seems to be that there is only one type of play and it's the Carol Churchill type of play, wonderful though they are, but um, it's a hard thing when you're going up against, let's face it, the real Carol Churchill, never mind all the other people pretending to be Carol Churchill. Um, but more important is the idea of what people tend not to do, which is quite rare that somebody's trying to be funny in an unsolicited script. Um, which is weird because comedy is really a desire in an audience. They, they almost demand it. It's almost, a, it's almost a demand that there should be wit and humour in there somewhere from an audience. Um, but it's hard. It's the hardest thing to do. So that's I can see why people don't do it. And it can be judged and it's subjective and stuff. Whereas if you're being opaque and intelligent and deep, who knows whether that's good? It might be. You know, it's, it's impossible to say whether that's it's very, very difficult. Anyway, but the comedy, somebody can go, I don't like it. And the other thing that people are trying to do very, very rarely is to move an audience emotionally, to make them cry, to make them feel something. Um, and again, it's an absolute fundamental of theatrical writing. But again, I know why people aren't doing that, because when that goes wrong, the blood gets everywhere. It's a mess, you know, and people can feel embarrassed that they've tried to do that. It looks like you're you're being um, controlling or that you're you're being a soap opera or something. Um, however, nobody's doing it. And it was one of the many breakthroughs for me. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the breakthroughs for me. Um, one of the things is that I haven't stopped working like that, unsolicited. The way I still prefer to work professionally is if I come up with an idea, don't tell anyone, and I'll work on it and work on it and work on it here. And then I'll send it out into the world so that the play does the work for me. It's a difficult way. To, I'm not recommending that as a way to work, really, because you don't make any money and you're working for nothing and you're still being rejected um, and all that stuff. You don't really grow as a career for that way. But um, what the upside of that is the play itself has to do a lot of work before it goes on. By the time you've seen a play of mine that I've sent in like that, it's convinced an awful lot of people who didn't ask for it in advance. It's already been tested and tested and tested by the time an audience get to see it, which is something I feel quite good about. I still like to come from that point of view. I get nervous when someone is going to take a play of mine, no matter what it is. In fact, I've only ever done that a couple of times and it's never really worked for me. I much prefer to have written it. Now, again, as you can imagine, that means I'm wasting an awful lot of time. 
because so much of what I write doesn't work. Um, I don't know what the numbers is. Let's say one in three. It'll be more than that. But let's say one in three. Um, I'll come back to the, my notebooks and stuff in a wee minute. But I write down all my ideas. Any idea I think when I get the tingle, when my spider sense is going, I go, ooh, that's a full show. By that, I mean that it will hold an audience's attention. It will move them in some way. And that just unravelling the story is going to take two hours. right? So that's a proper play. Anytime I get an idea like that, I get a notebook and I write rough working title on it. Um, and I put it in there. That means I can put it to the side and I can put ideas in it whenever I come back to it and it can build up over time. Over the last, let's say, four years, these are the plays that I've written that have come to nothing. So absolutely nothing. Um, that I'll have written these and maybe I've given them to one person. Sometimes I give them to a director and say, I think you'd be good for this. Hopefully matchmaker. But sometimes I give it to everybody. I send it out. Um, and what happens to me, rather than the rejection you guys will get, which will be an email probably, um, I get total silence. <laughs> they no, no, now what happens is nothing. And it's another type of death. You know, I have to meet people and we just in the bar and we just pretend it didn't happen. You know, even though I know that I've handed over this script and they're not mentioning it. You know, they're just it's so embarrassing. They're not even mentioning it. And there's two ways the pain comes. One is when you realise and you read it back, you go, Oh no, it was rubbish. How could I have let this out of the house? I worked on it for three months. Three months is what it takes for me for a draft, really. Worked three months on this and it's crap. It's obviously crap. What an egg. More painful is when you read it back and go, no, it's not. It's good. I think it's good. How could I be wrong? How can I be wrong about this? And the thing is, you kind of have to admit that you're in the wrong because those other people, they're the audience. We don't write for ourselves. We don't write for one person. We're writing for an audience. So if people don't like it, you can do this. It's the nature of the beast. And some of these... Um, were no no good. This one, the neutral act, this was the big neck for me because I thought this was the bee's knees, right? I gave this to everybody. All the artistic directors got this. And I handed it over as, as if I was giving them a wonderful Christmas present or something. <laughs> you're, you're quite welcome, you know. Nothing. Complete silence on it. Oh, I was gutted. And some of them come to, to uh, plays that don't, they just die in the vine, they, maybe they don't work. Um, some of them, this this didn't even get anywhere. Um, some of them become other plays. This this became another thing. This became a character in another play. Um, I don't think I got to draft on this. This one, uh, The Coward, I worked for about a year on the script of The Coward, and I was so excited about it, but it became too big. It was a cast of 17, which is impossible. And things had changed where there was no way Anyone was doing a play of mine with a cast of 17, you know, there was no chance. The sits responded to this one. Frances Poet was in that meeting and she got me a meeting with a TV company and a TV company have taken this on. Who knows? But it's been a long, long journey for that one. Um, so the rejection never really goes away. I see us as we are, what we are is like we're a little tiny cottage industry, right? And we're producing these wee things and we put our stall out and we, we, we go to work and we bring these things out. When the rejection day comes, the cottage industry is shut for that day, right? Nobody can work on that day. Nobody can. Your job is to make sure it's open the following day. However that you do that. For me, it's always wait until they see the next one. You know, I always think, oh, that's it, I'm out, I'm never doing it ever again, I can't take this anymore. You know, I, I get my little blank bit of paper and I write other jobs I am qualified to do. And I go, mm -hmm. none. But then another idea comes and I go, oh, no, right, oh, this will work. This will work. That one didn't work. But this one will work. I'm excited about this one. And that gets me on. It's the creative act of writing the play gets me on. And I go right through it again. And then every now and then you write one that for reasons that are beyond me catch. People want to do it and are excited about it. Um, you want to be sure of your own work, and we'll talk about how to do that in a little bit, but you don't want to be delusional about it either. If, if 
people come back and say it doesn't work. You've got to listen to them. You'll know instinctively if you're being fobbed off or if this person knows what they're talking about and is giving you decent advice and you have to listen to it. You really do. Um, I'm not sure I did listen in those years. That's why it took me so long. I was belligerent and ignorant, really. I didn't know how it worked. I, I, I was looking this morning, I was going to bring, show you some of my rejection letters because in those days you get an actual letter, you get your script back in a stamped addressed envelope so you would see your own writing on the doormat and your day would be ruined. I can't find my rejection letters. I used to give them out at workshops and things like that. I think a pile of them like this. Um, uh, quite a few of them were quite nasty because I don't think I was behaving very well. I think I was being a bit belligerent, a bit chippy, a bit swaggery, and a bit kind of like, does it, does it, you know, you've got something against me, there's a conspiracy going on, you know, and um, I, I, don't, I don't feel very good about that. Um, with those changes happened to me with my writing that I'm going to talk about now, but the personality thing, write this down, don't be a dick, because God, that causes so much trouble. This is such an interpersonal little business, okay? And bad behaviour and being an asshole, it, it just puts you back so so long. Trust me, trust me. If it wasn't for the forgiveness of a few professionals, I wouldn't have even started. I know their names and I'm still grateful to them who looked the other way on some kind of ignorant behaviour when I was trying to get going when I didn't have a clue how the industry worked. I didn't have a clue what I was supposed to be doing or why I was doing it. So, what changed? What got me out of all those 30 plays, slush pile, into getting plays on and produced and having a career that's lasted 20 years? Um, basically, it was three things, I think. Um, I changed how I wrote, how I literally put the play, laid out a play on the page, okay? how I prepared for it and how it looked. I also changed who I wrote for the audience, who they were in my mind, and literally. And then I changed who and what I wrote about. Okay. In amongst all of that was the big one, which was not a conscious decision, which is why am I doing this? Why? What's the point? <laughs> because I didn't know. I'm not I wasn't ever taken to theatre as a kid or anything like that. Um, I wasn't, I didn't see a play and think, I want to do that. I, I was doing it. I just liked being in shows. I liked being in the school musicals. And then as a student, I had my own little theatre company. I liked acting. I liked directing. I just liked the big daft laugh of it. I liked the nerves. I liked going on stage. I liked the whole journey. I didn't know why I liked it or what point it had or how it tied in with my life or anything. It was just something I thought, God, if I could make a living at that, how great would that be? And then, so, it was something I came to later. I understood why I was in this job and what I got from it. Um, so let's split it up. Let's talk about, first of all, um, the changes to the look on the page. Letting the audience in. There's been two periods of my life where I've watched the movie with Nolan and I on a daily basis. The first was when I was a student and I was kind of pretending to live that kind of bohemian life and all that. And then the second period was when I was living in Glasgow. I'd moved here to try and become a playwright. And I was literally living that with my and I life in that flat, drinking every day, trying and failing, trying and failing. And I watched that movie in that period like a documentary, really. I clung to it. But it was important just as a piece of art for me. But more important was what happened when I read the script, which my friend got hold of the script somehow. And um, I'd never read a screenplay before, I don't think. I've still hardly ever read any screenplays. It's not a thing I do. Um, but the opening of Withnall and I changed absolutely everything for me. Because if you've ever read it, the first, I don't know what they call them in movies, but in my life, it would be a stage direction. Describing the flat as the camera pulls out the kitchen and how the music's playing and how these people look is a page and a half of the most incredible writing. It's ornate, it's hilarious, 
it's bizarre. It's it's got a voice. It's like Bruce Robinson, the writer's voice mixed with withno. Rather than this text being something functional, which when I was coming through the nineties, that was the era of stage directions just being a field, a bursted hotel room, something like that. You know, no, there wasn't. It was a bit uncool. People thought stage directions were for George Bernard Shaw. You know, um, this stuff painted the picture so well, not just about what we could see, but what we could feel and what kind of thing we were going to get. It spoke in the voice, not of the writer, but of the show, of the film in this case. It struck me that these plays that I was sending off were being read by not the artistic director or not the director of anyone that would do the show, but by people quite low down on the ladder um, Maybe they were associates or they were literary managers or whatever it would be at the time. I can't I think that was the phrase. But people were saying things like, I read it on the bus and I found it quite difficult to get into. I was like, God, man, I'm reading it on the bus. Um, I'm going to have to do it. And I, by taking Whitmore and I's script as a kind of guide, I thought, right, I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to write stage directions at the beginning of my play that you cannot put down, that welcome the reader into the world of the show, that describe it, but also that speak in the, in the style of the play. They'll be more ornately written, maybe, than people are used to, but it will mean that you will be turning the pages, that when the characters come, they're fully described, they're embedded in the world. I also made sure that I started putting jokes in the stage directions, wit, that showed that I hadn't just churned this out, this was something I was spending a lot of time on, for especially right at the top, those early stage directions. Um, there are no rules to writing a play. No matter how often people at me talk about these things and do my workshops and my lectures and all that, that you can do what you want. That there's no right way and wrong way to do it. Um, but there are rules to this play. The play you're working on at the minute will have certain guidelines. You'll be able to do things in this play that maybe you couldn't do in another play. What was right for that will be wrong for this. E.g., in this play, people can talk to the audience. In that other play, they can't. In this play, it's going to be lots of little scenes spread over 10 years. In this other play, it's people in a room. Okay? And you that breaks down into tiny little rules where words, the way you phonetically spell things, I'm not, it doesn't fit this play, but it does fit this play. Um, in that opening stage direction, those opening minutes, what you're doing is laying out the rules. Well, you're not saying it's literally. You're just letting the reader, in this case, the woman on the bus, you're letting her go, in this play, these things can happen. This is the world of the play we're doing. Um, don't betray those rules. Now, you, halfway through a play, you might go and see something or you might read something and go, oh my God, that's so much cooler than mine. You know? Oh, I wish I was doing a play like that. Maybe I'll change it. Don't. You've got to tell the story of your play. You've got to listen to the play and you can't betray it. You know, you've got to... The, the trick is to express that play's voice in the most eloquent way possible. Don't get in the road. Just do what the play's telling you to do. Follow it and try and listen really carefully to what it's saying is allowed in this play or the way to tell me is to do this. All comes in the beginning. And the, that opening bit is the part of the play you're going to come back to again and again. As things develop as you write your play, that takeoff will need to change, you know, and you'll rewrite it and rewrite it and you'll read it and read it and read it. One thing you need to consider, I think, that I didn't in those days was your plays are being read on Kindle. Most theatres are paperless. So I hate them because Kindles bugger up your fonts and they bugger up your tabs, which is dead important, no matter what anybody says. Um, and it really just annoys me. Have a look at your play on a Kindle. And in the same way I was looking at my play as it would be read on a bus. How many flip of these pages do we get to before something good happens? You know, 
Is it smudged? Is it too tight looking? Is the font okay? You know, check that all out. Make it readable. Um, do them a favour. Welcome them in. Because really what happens when we get to the business end and we do it for real, which is with an audience, that's what we're doing. We're, we're welcoming the audience into the play. We're saying, this is what's going to happen. This is the world we're in. This is what we're dealing with. This is how I, I'm telling you the story. And there always has to be an open door for everybody. There has to be an open door. They have to be able to get in. Even if it's the most crazy avant-garde thing, they have to be able to get in somehow or else what are we doing? Um, the other thing that I changed at that point was I moved my premise much closer to page one. Now, that was a very deliberate act because I thought people aren't hanging around to find out what the story is. They, they want to know much quicker than they would normally do in a play. In a play, actually, you can wait a little while for your premise to arrive. People like getting to know who these people are, where we are. They like looking at the set. They like watching actors do their thing. They like finding out the characters. And then they like to find out, oh, here's the premise. On the scripts I was sending in in those days, though, that wasn't working because nobody was reading beyond page 12. So I had to move it much earlier. Don't panic. I know you're thinking, oh, God, Douglas, I don't think I've even got a premise. You do. You do. The premise is what makes you want to write the play. It's the thing, the idea for the for the show. It's the bit that think you've thought, oh, I'm going to tell people that. What's your play about? Oh, it's about this guy. You know, that's it. Now, to be literal about it, your premise is the part of that sentence of explanation where you use the word but, okay? This character or a set of characters, they're in this situation. They have certain expectations. But something happens that has never happened before, boom, into their lives, okay? That's the premise. That's the beginning of the premise. Actually, in a story, the word but is married to the word so, okay? But this happens, so they decide to, so this guy turns out that he's the, so somebody doesn't, you know, it's the action. But is the problem, so is the action, okay? And that's, you'll have that already. That's, that's what the idea is, that's what your play is. So don't worry about that. But I moved that much closer to the beginning of the page. Now, the trouble with doing that is it becomes a much harder form of writing. New plays, generally speaking, and a lot of my plays, they have one premise and then the, that but, that bomb that goes off in the expectations of this world, the thing that's different, that opens people up. It creates a conflict between people. This, the past gets revealed. People need to express new things because of this. And the characters interact because of it. And then at the end, so they decide to, or one of them decides that the action comes right at the end of a new play. And that's the play. And there's nothing wrong with that. But by moving your premise right to the beginning means you're going to need more buts and so's. But, so, but, so, they try that. Doesn't work. So they try this. But that means that they have to invite this person back. So they then have to do this. And that becomes a narrative, which is a very different type of play and actually not that common. Um, theatre isn't really narrative dri driven anymore. TV is and films are, but theatre isn't really. It's, there are other things that can keep it going. But all we're really keeping our eye on with this stuff, once it's up and running, are we holding the audience's attention and are we moving them as we tell the story? A theatre audience wants to be in a different place at the end of that 90 minutes than they were at the beginning. Um, how they get moved, that's up to you. That could be anything. You could cheer them up. You could anger them. You could radicalise them. You could make them feel sad. You could make them feel in love. You could just... you can terrorise them. But of those two, the holding of attention is far, far more important. Every note you're ever going to get from this stage to rehearsal room, when people go, I don't know about this, does that work? Does that, is that confusing? Is that Really what they're saying is, I don't think they're going to listen. I think we're going to lose them. That's what this problem is. It's not working. When, the, when theatre isn't working, it just means the audience aren't paying attention. And although it sounds low and it sounds a little bit 
unimportant. If there's no attention, there's literally no art. Nothing is happening. Theatre is not... I, sometimes I think it's actually not literature. It doesn't exist on its own script. We're creating an, uh, its instructions for events in the hope that that event then causes some kind of artistic reaction with the audience. So we're hoping that within the holding of that attention, something's going to happen and something's going to move them. Um, but that's really all we're, all we're trying to do with that. Um, so by moving the premise meant that I had to do a lot more work before I got going. So rather than what used to happen, which is just I had an idea and started, just having an idea was enough. It didn't need to be a good idea. It could just be even a conversation between two people. I just start and very often paint myself into a corner or it, just, it was like a sketch that stretched out over two hours. Knowing that I had to have more of these but so, but so, but so, it meant that I had to go and prepare. And, you know, that's where the books came in. That I would have to, I would have to write this out. I'd have to work out who the characters were and where they went. How does it go? Um, that allowed me to see the play as a much bigger whole. So I could start placing in repetition. I could start saying, "Oh, that ha that was a cool moment." Maybe later on, I'll reverse it, and someone else does one that's a little bit similar, but you know, different. Or maybe that phrase pops up again that we've heard before. But someone else heard it and now they're saying it, but it's a mess. Or maybe that letter, you know, and it starts to become more of an intricate thing. I started to have to break it up because you can't just have that kind of frenetic plot happening. So I started putting things in two halves, first of all. Then I started chopping things into three, which is really the most satisfying way for me. Um, three big chunks of stuff. I wasn't really thinking about acts in those days. Um, nowadays, when I write, I go further and I write a full synopsis of a play. This is for a play I'm writing at the minute for um, students. And this is a, an 18-page synopsis of, of the story, of, of every moment, every beat, um, before I start writing. So I've, got, I've done the book, then I do a structure, then I do a synopsis, because it just keep, I, I feel like it's the richest way to do it. And it allows where I am now with my writing, I'm looking for that depth and richness and but listen, apart from all of that, there is another thing, which is sometimes I don't do that. Sometimes an idea just comes to me and I, I want to start. I want to feel the wind in the sails of it. And I know I can do it. The idea presents itself in such a way that it's already there. And I just have to keep it down. That sometimes that's a, a kind of coming together of two, two of these Maybe two of these failed ideas come crashing together. The style of how it's done tells me that it's exciting. And there's no doubt about it. That type of writing is much more fun. You feel more like an artist than you do when you're planning and doing them. Those are tough days when you're writing synopsis. Tough days when you're planning it. It's a grind sometimes. It doesn't feel like you're being very cool. Um, but it gets you where you need to go. So sometimes they come, sometimes they don't. It doesn't happen very much for me. This lightning bolt thing, but they are my favourite pieces of work. So, you know what I mean? No rules. Who are these plays for? In the middle of all that kind of Whitnall and I period, um, I wrote a play called Decky Does a Bronco. I, I wrote 15 plays after Decky Does a Bronco that were completely rubbish. I'd even forgotten, I barely knew I'd written it. I wrote it for my cousin, Colin. We'd been out for a few pints one night and um, we'd got talking about a summer we'd spent as wee boys giving Bronco and swings. And um, I thought I'd write him as a present. Um, I, I never gave it to him as a present. But it was a very different writing experience from what I was writing at the time. It felt, I could feel something here rather than there. I, was, I could feel it. I didn't need to guess anymore about what those people were saying. And at the end, when I wrote the ending of it, I burst into tears. And I remember being completely ashamed of that and thinking I was doing something wrong. That wasn't what happened when you were reading about Pinter and all those big boys, you know. In the good old days, they weren't doing that. So I thought I'd made a terrible error with it. There was something wrong with this. I mean, I really was a fucking idiot. I mean, I had no idea about anything. I was so dumb I wouldn't even have watched something like this. I, I was really dancing in the dark 
Um, but really, that was the change. It took me a long time to realise that what I'd done with Decade as a Bronco was an important thing. And it tied into that was that a couple of ideas. One was I was writing it for my friend. I was writing it for friends, you know. No longer was I thinking of a theatre audience as being like retired judges and old ladies with blue hair who I didn't know. I had no idea what they would people would expect. I wasn't writing for people who knew a lot about theatre and were saying, oh, that's wrong, you shouldn't be doing that. A play is this, a play is that. This is what a play should be. I was writing it for people who probably didn't really want to play. Um, but it was freeing. Now, when you're thinking about who's this play for, there is a direct answer to that. You're writing plays for your friends. Okay? Not for me, not for the audience, not for the this mythical audience anyway, not for the various kind of people you have to impress. You're, the audience for your play is your pals. You're trying to impress them. But they know what you know. You don't have to explain the references. They also know when you're bullshitting. You know, but they want fiction. They want something, they want something that's made up. But they also want recognisable things. They're going to get it. Okay? You talk to them without artifice. You talk to them without putting on a voice. You're direct. You don't hector them. You don't lecture them. You're not trying to convert them. You're just talking to them. You can argue with them, but that's a different thing. Um, and you can't be boring, you know, which is surely the key to playwriting. Just don't be boring. Try not to be boring. Write that down. Um, they know you. Decky got sent away with all the usual rejections and then it got picked to go to a thing via TAG Theatre Company, a th place called the Performing Arts Lab, which was about writing for teenagers. Now, again, being the idiot I was, I didn't want to go because I really looked down my nose at that. I thought I thought it was like plays about bullying for school gyms. I'm not doing that. I'm Tennessee fucking Williams. You know, the usual rubbish. And um, But thank God I did go because it turned out for me, the last little ingredient that changed my work forever was to aim it at a young audience, younger than me. So I'd be about my 24 around about this point. And um, I was being asked to think of an, uh, the audience being 250 15-year-olds. Now, unlike when I was picturing the play, when I was writing it, and I do, when I write my plays, I picture them on a stage. I know some playwrights don't. They picture it in the real world. They can look, if it's in a cafe, they can look around and see all the bits of the cafe. It doesn't work for me that. I picture people up, up there underneath a sign that says cafe with exits and entrances. You know, I, I, I see it from that point of view. Everybody's different. But when I thought of the audience, I thought of lots of old people, like professors, people who knew what they were talking about, and kind of critics and art experts, and it, it shut me down. For reasons unexplained, when I saw them as an audience of 15-year-olds, I knew exactly what to do for them. And I knew how it would work. I knew how I'd change, I need to change this to get this working for them. I knew what they didn't want, you know, and I knew how to tell them a story in a theatrical style that would be relevant to them, but would also be kind of cool and surprising and kind of funky. Um, that was the big change. And I still now do a little skim read of a play of mine before I send it out, picturing it from the eyes of a 15-year-old who's never been to theatre before and has all the prejudice that they have. Will it work? And it is always something that brings a play of mine to life. I can't write for them anymore. I've lost it over the years. Weirdly, considering now I've got two daughters, one of them's 12, and you would think I would be more attuned to that, but I haven't. I've lost the voice. It's gone. Um, but it's still there as an, as an idea, as a reader. I've seen it as an audience member. Um, down at that performing arts lab, I wrote the first page of a play called Helmet, which is about computer games and about the computer game shop I was working in at the time. And I, it was a page and a half, and I just kept reading it and reading it and reading it when I wrote it because I knew it was different. I knew it, I knew that there had it turned out there hadn't been a conspiracy. I just wasn't very good. I just wasn't good enough because here in front of me was a play. Okay. Now this ties into my next thing, 
which is... What are you writing about? When I was sending those plays out, I wrote whatever came into my head. As soon as I had an idea, I wrote it down. I just started. Um, and I was copying all the time. Copying other writers, my favourite playwrights, plays I'd seen. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. I'm not I'm not sure that there's ever been someone who's done it another way. I think all artists start with some degree of emulation. And it's how we learn, in a sense, and how we learn what's different between our voice and someone else's. Um, and I thought I knew what plays should be about, you know. Um, you know, I think some people quite often do that. You, you naturally think a play should contain certain types of scenes and certain types of people and maybe be a type. Quite often people think a play should be people trapped in a room, you know. There's a million other ways to tell a story. Um, but I thought there was types of situations, types of people, and I was sure that the last thing anyone wanted to be interested in was anything to do with me. I hadn't lived a very interesting life. I, I didn't have a very unusual perspective or anything like that, I didn't think. Um, so I didn't really give my own life much of a thought until really late on, um, after people started liking Decade as a Bronco and Helmet and those kind of plays I was writing at that point. Um, I started to write plays set in my own world with my own guys in them, my friends, my people, my family, people I saw, people I worked with, people I, I spoke to. Um, and that changed absolutely everything for me. I was no longer doing a version of something. I wasn't trying to emulate someone else. I was being myself. Um, at first, I thought I was making a terrible mistake because I was being, by naturally, that those plays seemed a lot smaller than these big epics. These weren't, these weren't massive main stage dramas and tragedies about kings or queens or soldiers or people with guns or any of that. Um, they weren't diatribes, they weren't lectures, they weren't testimonies of awful things that had happened to someone. Um, they weren't news, they weren't politics, they were just these small little things, tender things, but they were mine. They belonged to me, that was what I, that's who I was. And um, that kind of changed everything for me. It was a turning round of the lens. Instead of trying to notate what I saw the world as being, I pointed it back at me and how I felt about seeing the world um, coming from the inside out. It was, it was a slightly different way of looking at it for me. Um, those locations, those characters, street names, jobs, jokes, music, well, that, that whole thing became a fabric. It became a, a, a kind of world that I could easily get into. I no longer had to guess what people were going to do. Oh, what will they do next? I wonder. You know, I, I can't know. I don't know what a prime minister's going to do. I don't know what a king does. But I can picture what someone in my life is going to do under a dramatic situation. And that dramatic situation, that premise we talked about earlier on, was fictional. I made it up. I dropped a fictional thing into the real world. I also, keeping an eye on those 15 year olds up the back, had I gave it a kind of theatrical otherness, just a frame, a mo moments where the, it just to break the realism. I'm not a great fan of reality. I don't like it very much. I much prefer something else. I like it to be real. I'm still saying these people are real, believing them is real, but there's something other happening around it. Um, just to keep keep it surprising and keep them keep the audience a little bit dazzled and keeping the theatrics going with it. Um, I put my own dilemmas in. So rather than the problems of the world. It was things that I was worried about, just choices I had to make, things that were bugging me or worrying me, my conflicts rather than the conflicts of society, just things that were that I was in two minds about or unsure about or worried about. Very often it was a there but for the grace of God go I story. That had I not done this, this might have happened. And I, the more I've done this, I do actually think this is our job. As playwrights, it's our duty to take the people from our lives, our guys, our families, our friends, our world as we see it, and to put them on stage and to demand through our talent as storytellers that the audience pay attention to them with the same respect they give Shakespeare's kings and queens. Our people are just as important as that.
these stories are just as important and they're worth your attention and you'll get something from it and we'll get something from it. We've got to find ways to make our stories as alert as that and as vital to the audience. Um, I've used the word voice, I can clock in it a wee bit because I don't like it, I don't like the word voice about plays because what really happened with me was I didn't find a voice. Everyone, you don't find voice, you've got a voice. You're born with a voice. What I'd found was a song to sing that suited the voice I already had. I couldn't hit the notes that Tarantino, Mamet and Pinter and Eightborn were hitting. I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't hit Brecht. I can't do Shakespeare, Chekhov or any of that. I, I, my voice didn't suit it. Brought closer to the ground. I wasn't singing opera. I was singing acoustic ditties around a campfire. You know, it suits my voice. It suits it. And the voice of the play started to mesh up with my own voice to make this eloquent storytelling style, which is what you're really hoping for in the end. Um, the weird thing that happened at that point, this was way before I had a play on. I'd written three plays that eventually went on. It took them two years to go on. What happened was I changed because I, because I now had these things, I was making these plays that were mine. No one could copy them. Been possible. They weren't really like anything else either. And I'd crafted them and shaped them and worked on them. And they were better and they held attention when you read them. They welcomed you in. They formed they were whole organic pieces that were one thing that were mine. Strangely, what happened is I stopped being a dick. I stopped swagging around with a chip in my shoulder thinking it was a conspiracy. Stopped kind of thinking I was the big I am and just relaxed. Because I felt I'd done it. And I felt if this doesn't come to anything, I'll be all right. Because I've made these things. Also, what happened was I didn't need to go and do any salesman stuff. I didn't need to brag. I didn't need to make promises. I didn't know if I could keep the play, did it? I posted it off. Decky does a Bronco helmet, her bad magnet. They did, the, they did it. Some people liked it. Some people didn't like it. But the play opened the doors. The play told the story. The play was its own thing. And the more I've written, strangely, I've found that when I've gone off the rails a bit is when I betray the plays, when I'm not the type of person. I'm not living up to the plays. The plays are better than me. And I should be really, I should be honouring them in how I behave and how I talk and how I write and how I go about my professional business. I went a wee bit off the rails again. Once my plays went on, I kind of got unmoored. All my dreams had come true and I went I went into the dark side a bit there again. But I got back to being who I really am by going back to the unsolicited script. I had a play on in this, my second year as a playwright that was like such a phenomenal disaster that nobody could work with me. That I was box office poison. I'd made a few enemies by being a fanny and not being a nice guy and thinking I was ace even though I mean, I think it was just all those years reading the NME. I thought that was how you were meant to behave. No, it's not like that. It's a village. You know, we're all in it together. And I had to, my hand was forced. I had to start unsolicited scripts again. I, I, went, I, I started writing plays without putting my name on them. I wrote a play called If Destroyed True that you have to read 14 pages before you get to the title page because I knew if they saw my name on the title, they wouldn't read it. I, there was no way. I had to reinvent right back from the beginning and go back to where you guys are now of sending plays away. It's always been the rejuvenating factor for me to come right back to that point of somebody has to read this without knowing who wrote it and it still has to rock. It still has to rock. Um, I'm still in competition with you guys. I know you won't buy that, you know, but I feel it and I, and I feel I now have to compete with you my play has to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with your idea because the new in new writing is always better than the old. We're, we're not very good at that, especially in Scotland. We're not very good at creating a canon of work and creating a professional ladder that people can survive on. And, you know, you get to a point, you're out the door. You know, you're floating off in a bit of ice. It's happened to me. I'm three times round now, out of fashion, into fashion, out of fashion, into fashion. Don't know what to do. And at the minute, of course, I'm a white, straight, middle-aged, middle-class man.
you know, nobody wants to hear from me, you know, at all. So uh, my plays have to be super good. They have to be unbelievably uh, exciting on page one, right the way through, just to go toe to toe with you guys. Um, I love it though. I love this idea uh, that your work is the work I'm interested in, that you're the type of plays I go and see. I love new plays and I love reading them and I love talking with you guys and I love, I love that beginnings. And I always want my plays to be in a tussle with them. Even if people are saying, I fucking hate his writing, they're terrible, most bloody plays and all the same. I, I like that little argument. I like to be part of it, you know, and looking at that work and thinking, right, what do I have to do here to lift my work up above everyone else's? It's the same thing you're feeling, I'm sure now. But as long as you've created something that's yours from your world, the pain goes away a bit and things begin to be a little easier and you start to open up. When I was sending these plays to the Traverse, which my really, the Traverse Theatre was my only open door for years and years and years. Um, the woman that was reading them was called Ella Wildridge. Um, she, had, she, she was pulling her hair out with me because she could sense in me there was something about me. She could kind of sense I was probably a theatre person, I was an artist, but I just wasn't doing it right. And it used to drive her crazy. And the stuff I was writing, I went through a whole period of writing like frat boy comedies. I think, comedies, I think I was trying to be like Kevin Smith or something, but they were real, people were disgusted by them. To know they were misogynistic and they were really ignorant and horrible. And I mean, this was the 90s. How bad must they have been? And I would write one thing and radically change the other thing. I was all over the show. Anyway, one day Ella said, um, I said, I've had four plays or something. When's my next one coming on? And she said, it'll be your 14th play. And it destroyed me that it would take that long. Um, strangely though, it was fine. <laughs> because as long as I had a new idea, there's always, you've always got to have something on the horizon just to keep you interested, something to look forward to. But she also introduced me to her partner, who was Tom McGrath, who was a really famous figure in Scottish theatre, an amazing writer, an amazing person. He had this little office in the Lyceum building. And I went along to meet him and he, he did a kind of introduction speech to me. He was talking away and he said the phrase, see Douglas, writers like us, we, I don't know what he said after that because I blacked out, right? Writers like us? What's he talking about? There was nothing that tied me to Tom McGrath. Nothing at that point. And yet he, he used the word us. And... There was something unbelievably empowering about it. No one had even referred to me as a writer. You know, I, I felt like I was a, a pretend writer. I was a, they had a developing something or other, or, you know, a workshop playwright wannabe or something. No one had just said, that is, you're a playwright. You're doing it. You're writing plays. Therefore, you are a playwright. Um, it felt incredibly important to me. But the word us is the key. And it's, it's really vital that you see it in two ways. One is, I started writing for us, right? not them. I wasn't writing plays that had to beat them or get through the door or through the, the gate or whatever it is. They weren't getting played to an audience of them. I was writing a play for us. I assumed we were an us, that we were all in this at the same together, that we, were, we would all buy into this story because we've all felt this. And we, we all want to see it because we all love these characters. And we've all been these characters because I've been these characters. And that the audience were us. And they weren't, they didn't need to be convinced. They didn't need to be beaten down or explained to or talked down to. They were us. They, they got it, you know. Um, and that's actually the truth. And when I was reading all the books beforehand about those big West End playwrights and New York playwrights, their audience to them were strangers. And very much them. You know, very much an opposite, a completely different class, completely different lifestyle who'd kind of descended to see their plays and anoint them. That's not what it's like if you're a working playwright in Scotland. It's just not what it's like. You know the audience, you see them. We've got our plays going in smaller theatres. There's a proximity to the audience, both in life experience and just the fact they're there. They tell you what they think the whole time, you know, and you have a relationship with them. I've been so blessed and lucky in my career that I've had a relationship that's lasted 20 years with an audience, that I've had a conversation that has developed as I've written characters that are moving from maybe their teens to their 20s to their 30s, now into their 40s, 
and I can develop that conversation together. Um, the other thing was that I started to think of the theatre industry as us, which beforehand I didn't. I, I very much wanted to be an outside. I wanted to be. I liked it. There's something nice about that, to feel that you're outside and they're all together and they don't understand and they're ignoring you deliberately um, and it's all a conspiracy. And that bitterness can be quite, it's quite a nice feeling that. It can, it's something to cling to. For me, as a playwright, bitterness doesn't work as an engine for creativity. It does for some people. It is for quite a lot of playwrights. I think they, they, they get something from it. It's a little spark that energises them. It does, doesn't work for me and it doesn't work for my characters. So by starting to think that actually, no, they're not a conspiracy, they're desperately trying to do good work. They're all artists and all they're trying to do is find great work for their audience. And they're in they're pushing you towards the great work. In a way, I slightly leaned into it. Like, I wouldn't have watched this. I didn't go to workshops. I didn't go and hear playwrights speak. I didn't read any Scottish playwrights until I had plays on. And then I, I was forced and, and understood that I was part of a much longer line. I thought it was some unique genius. And then I started reading all these playwrights. and went, oh, God, they've all done this before me. And they're much better. I need to up my game here, you know. And that changed things. It changed, it changed the viewpoint. I became... A slightly better person, apart from anything, which again helped my work, I think. Um, not to say that that ambition that you may feel is a bad thing. Ambition's good. And that drive for success and fame and fortune and that urge to keep going helps with theatre. We, we have to be kind of on the front foot. We're more performative. Our plays, like I say, don't get whispered into the ear of one reader. They are shouted in a room of strangers. It takes a lot of courage and it takes, it's a public forum. It's very difficult. You have to learn ways to do that. It's a split personality thing. You have a nice poetic soul over here and then you have the person that steps out and becomes public. We have to find a way to do that. Um, so that ambition gets you there in a way. Um, it gets you over that threshold of terror and the, Feel that you're not that type of person. You are, you are, but you just have to fake it. Nobody particularly likes it. Um, but if I had to say something for, from my perspective, I can only talk from my perspective. To you, that I can say, you will absolutely, definitely make it as a professional playwright because I did. And I swear to God, my stuff was so much worse than yours. It was so bad. It was so bad. And I made it. I, I'm, I've, I've been writing plays for 20 years and plays on all over the world. I make a living. You know, I've only ever really written for theatre as well. I don't really write for anything else. Um, so it's doable. My God, it's doable. And if you just follow that and keep learning, keep reading plays, keep reading plays, books about plays, keep seeing plays when we can, and then keep writing a lot. I think you'll get there. One last thing before I go, let's do some quick fixes, okay? Quick fixes, scan it over if your play has hit the skids. Here's what you can do that might just bring them back to life a tiny bit. Quick fixes. Okay, a couple of very quick things you can do if you feel your play's struggling a little bit. Um, all plays sag in the middle, every single one. There is no exception to that, unless the play, even a play that's like three minutes long will have a little sag in it. The way to get round it is distraction. You're looking for breaking out of scenes before they kick off, splitting things up, have your interval about 55 minutes, round about an hour, an audience does this. Right, they, they kind of reset a bit, you can feel them. They're not out forever, but they just wobble a wee bit at an hour. So get out just before the hour. Split it up so it rattles along or have a distraction of some sort. Um, more problems are better than fewer problems. If there's, if there's something gone wrong, it's probably there's not enough. Your characters don't have enough to kick against. There's not enough problems happening, which means there's nothing happening at all. The playwright Ian Hegg gave me one of the best bits of advice I've ever had. He said that in every play, at every moment, something has to be happening. 
Now you might think, oh, of course something has to be happening. You know, it's a play, what else could we do? But you'd be amazed. I think about that advice on a daily basis. I'm reading the scene going, what the hell's wrong with this? Oh, nothing's going on. It's just people talking. Talking isn't enough. Language isn't enough. Something has to be happening underneath. Um, plan it out. That's your other one. It's boring, takes ages, but it works. Uh, split into bits. Two halves. Saturday night, Sunday morning. Beginning, middle, end. Three days, three acts, three stories. There's three people, there's three whatever it is. Split it into bits. It helps you compartmentalise. Um, by the doing all that prep, allows you to put um, repetition and details that make it, that hark back to the beginning of the play, which makes the play seem unbelievably muscular. It, it just looks like there's somebody driving this thing, which people love. You know, you can have a good play that is wobbling all over the place and people get a bit nervous. They're not sure you meant it. So it just shows, look like you mean it or fake it. Nobody means it. Um, read it out loud. Now, when I write, I, I, read, I, I speak in a kind of sort of voice. I've had to change my desk around. My window's over here, and my desk now is here. I had to get blinds put in because I've, this is a house I've been in flats all my entire life. I've never had a house before, but this is a house with a neighbour straight across, and they were seeing me like this. How dare you say that? How dare you say that? How the fuck? Are you? Who the fuck are you to say that? I act it all out, but in a kind of whispered voice. Um, you, I, when I'm finished my draft, I read the whole thing out. Not only for timing, but for breath and to get a feel of this, the shape of it. But you don't really learn until you get someone else to read it out. I started getting friends to come round. I'd get a big box of wine and my pals would read it. And some of them were trained actors. They'd been to Langside College, but some of them were just my pals. And it's torture because even though they'll have killed your script stone dead with a terrible, terrible acting, they have no problem whatsoever in telling you that your structure's wrong. Or that you dramaturgically, it's not really very, it's not very uh, exciting, and we've done this before. And you, you know, they tell you you're rubbish, basically. But you will learn so much from hearing those words in the room. It's really worth the pain. Um, stick a character in your play that doesn't say very much. You'll thank me. Work out what character, what state your main characters are in at the start of the play. What state of mind are they in? How do they feel? And then you flip it, right? Complete opposites. Then you flip it again. Complete opposites. And then you flip that one more time. One, two, three. It's a slalom of emotions for them. By doing that, you can work out what your story needs to do to make them that and push them into that emotional state. And those that kind of the emotion of the character and the story work hand in hand, they talk to each other and they, they, they shift around, it's kind of hard to tell. But chances are you probably haven't given them enough bends. Just give them more to do. Um, take a risk. If you're ever weighing up, oh, I don't know, this is a bit risky. Always go with the risky one. Theatre rewards risk. It, revol it re rewards courage. Um, do the scary thing. Um, don't worry about theatre. I know at the moment you might start to think that this whole thing is even more pointless than it used to be because maybe there won't even be theatre at the end of all this. Theatre will be fine. Theatre survived the death of the classical world. It survived the plague. It survived the Puritans. It survived Celebrity Big Brother. It's fine. It'll make it. It might be in a different form. We might have to adapt. We might have to start changing how we write or who we write for, where it's going to go. But it will still be there and it needs you. It needs you to write the plays because only you will know how to do that. I'll be gone by then. I won't be able to do it. You are all desperately trying to and failing, trying to catch up with you. But you know how to do it. Um, and I can't wait to see what you come up with. I can't wait to see what those answers are. Um, I can't wait to be in a theatre again. I'm so starving for it. And if I'm starving for it, everyone's going to be starving for it. I'm starving for all types of theatre. Particularly that scuzzy, fringy, slightly pretentious, stuck in a room kind of theatre where, you know, maybe performance art stuff that doesn't make any sense. I'm so hungry for that. And I'm hungry for comedy. And I'm hungry for deep, dark tragedy. And I'm hungry for those one person shows that are just being like misery operas. Everything. 
But I want to see particularly what's new, what's the new thing that's going to come and save us all because it will be there and it will be coming from you guys. Um, I can't wait to see it. Um, I, I hope that was of some use. I hope it wasn't too torturous. Um, if you ever see me hanging around the theatres, come up and say hello. Um, I want to know you and I want to find out how you're getting on. Um, and, you know, writers like us, we've got one thing that we have over others, maybe, which is that we um, we know why we're doing this. To come from where you are to where having a show on, to come where I'm come from, we know why we do it and why we keep on doing it. Because we must. Because we have to do it. Or else we just don't function as human beings. And keep on keeping on. And I hope you stay healthy and happy. Look after yourself. I'll see you on the other side. You can watch or listen to all available open submissions workshops at traverse.co.uk forward slash get hyphen involved. For more information on and to support the Traverse's talent development work, visit traverse.co.uk forward slash support us. Thank you for listening.